Welcome to the Diane Podcast. Diane, or Diversity and Inclusion in Asia Network, is the leading network of companies and professionals committed to advancing diversity and inclusion in their organizations in Asia. Leveraging a decade of expertise in thought leadership, we hope this podcast inspires, educates, and motivates passionate individuals like yourself. My name is Tina Arcelia, Senior Manager at Community Business, and I manage the Diane Network. Joining us today for the first Diane Thought Leadership Podcast is Executive Coach and Leadership Strategist Jane Hyun, author of Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling and co-author of Flex. So good to have you with us, Jane. Uh, it's great to be here with you, Tina, and thanks so much for, uh, for inviting me. So we heard of you and Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling a number of years ago, and we reached out and were able to partner with you a few times. But for the benefit of those listening in who may not know the background to our relationship with you, could you share a little bit about yourself and your relationship with community business and with Diane? Uh, sure. Well, I think we've been on quite a journey together, haven't we? Absolutely. Um, I remember getting a call from community business maybe about a month or so after Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling was published here in North America. And until I came to your first conference in 2005 to participate as a speaker, I had no idea that issues of inclusion and diversity were being considered seriously in Asia. So uh, in, in many ways, you know, because the, the bamboo ceiling concept and uh, the concept of Asians in the workplace was very young uh, or the concept was at a young stage, I feel like we've kind of grown up together, hasn't it? Um, haven't we together? Um, uh, one of the things I discovered when I came to the conference was that as I spoke to some of the local CEOs and the heads of HR, it sounded like many of the issues of career development and uh, inclusion and diversity also impacted talent uh, there as well throughout the Asia-Pacific region. So uh, it's been good to see uh, how you guys have grown and, and now have this network uh, of the Diane Network as well as um, all the different research things, uh, research reports that you put together. Absolutely. It's been a great 10 years of very interesting conversations around DNI here in Asia. And I think your concept of the bamboo ceiling really helped develop a vocabulary for those discussions around culture. But from your perspective, how was the idea of the bamboo ceiling received in North America and in Asia? So I'd like to start by sharing with you why I wrote the book in the first place and then give you a little bit of a glimpse of how it has been received and, and how the work continues to, um, to work. So. Um, I think you might know some of my personal story. I was born in Korea and grew up and grew up in Asia, uh, and I'd experienced life in a very different way. Um, and then here, moving to to U.S. and growing into adulthood here and starting to work in the corporate space in environments where it was very different from the way that I was raised. And so, uh, as I sort of saw these dynamics at play in the workplace, uh, I realized that no one seemed to be really addressing the elephant in the room, as they say here. Uh, I saw Asians entering the workforce in large numbers and making it to middle management, but then I saw a lot of barriers they encountered. And I wanted to highlight the issues, particularly as it relates to Asians in the workplace uh, and the community of Asians uh, in these Western organizations, especially because they worked in these aggressive cultures where you had to be bold and speak up uh, and to engage with managers in a certain kind of a way. The second reason I wrote the book was, um, as I realized and, and navigated through corporate America myself, I wanted to make things better, and I wanted to 
create an environment where uh, people who came in the next generation, uh, Asians who entered the workforce and who were emerging leaders, uh, could be better equipped and there were more resources in organizations to understand them and to provide them with uh, strategies that would help them engage as well. Um, as far as the reception, it, it was actually quite interesting, uh, the reception of the ceiling um, uh, and the concept of, you know, where it was. I think early on I, I had kind of extremes uh, in reception. So on one hand, you know, I talked with young people, even friends of mine, uh, you know, let's say young millennials at the time as well as peers who were working uh, in these organizations who said, you know, there is no such a thing. There is no such a thing as bamboo ceiling, right? When I explained that. Uh, it's clearly a, a, a term that's a nod to the glass ceiling, and particularly as it relates to Asians. Uh, and they said, you know, hey, I, I speak very well, and I'm quite acculturated into Western culture, and I have lots of friends who are American, et cetera. You know, how could there be a ceiling, right? So there was just sort of one perspective of, of lack of understanding. And then I would go to book events, right? I would go to bookstores and uh, do speaking and, and signing events there. And I remember this gentleman who's probably uh, uh, probably in his late 50s at the time who uh, during the Q&A time stood up and told me, you know, finally we're talking about this and I've had to be, uh, I've had to kind of give up managerial roles because I've had to train people and no one really recognized the hard work I put into this. And I'm really glad that this is finally here because this is long overdue. And so I heard kind of these both extremes, right? Um, people who didn't really see the need, and then uh, you heard from individuals who felt like this was this was good timing for that. Um, and, and so when I look at the history of the bamboo ceiling and, and how the book has been received, and now I think we, we've come to at least the, the stage of awareness at this point. I think most organizations, especially large organizations that work globally, they see the need and and the imperative for talking about this topic, especially in the diversity and inclusion conversation. But I also see various stages of acceptance, right? And various stages of leaders who see the importance of addressing it and, uh, and the need to do things differently. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a perspective on and where, where the, the, the book was introduced and the timing it was uh, introduced to and, and where, it has, um, where it has emerged in the last few years. I see, I see. So, since the initial release of the bamboo ceiling, how has that discussion evolved over the past years? What kind of responses and discussions has it inspired since? More importantly, what is the difference in the conversations happening in the U.S. versus the conversations happening here in Asia? Yeah, that's a really great question, Tina, and it has evolved, uh, and it's, it's come to kind of a new uh, a new place of discussion as well. So when I was doing the original research for Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling and, and conducting the interviews and the qualitative research, it really showed that uh, leadership in Western multinationals, particularly North America, it favored kind of this Western, often American leadership archetype. And uh, as new entrants into the workforce became more multicultural, and in the U.S., 36% of the workforce is multicultural and non-white, uh, the leadership models had not caught up to the shift, right, in the workforce, uh, the shift in the face of who made up the workforce. Um, and, and so from a North American point of view, uh, I found that, that too often Asians did have potential leadership skills or demonstrated leadership in a certain way, but they didn't always look and sound like their Anglo heritage counterparts, right? Uh, so that awareness was not always there for organizations, or if they knew about it, they, they didn't 
really have the appetite to change. Now, since then, um, since this is now over about 13 years ago, um, I've been working with global companies as this idea of Asians working in a Western setting um, is it, a dynamic found all over the world, actually, right? So it, I've been doing work in Asia. I've been doing work in different parts of the world um, to really explore this dynamic and to think about when you have a global company and you've got a workforce that's not uh, homogenous, and in particular in Asia, you've got, let's say, a, a good amount of the population being of Asian descent, uh, and then they have either headquarters or um, lots of offices outside of that region that they're working with. There are lots of challenges, right, as it relates to cross-cultural issues and that kind of thing. So what I've been doing is um, getting involved with developing some local talent and helping them become more global, uh, as well as working with uh, organizations at their headquarters, often in the U.S. or, or the West, to help them understand and build a culture that is more fertile and um, uh, conducive to more uh, adaptive uh, cultures so that they can work more effectively with, with talent around the world, particularly in Asia, that addresses that. So I feel that um, it, it was kind of an American thing uh, at one point, and now it's, it's coming to the place where we're having this conversation on a local level as well as cross-border and globally. So it, I, I believe that it's, it's matured more, uh, and there's certainly lots of work to be done to continue that work and uh, continue the progress around it. Uh, but I think the, the conversation has truly evolved. I love those points around developing global competencies, as well as changing those perceptions of leadership within organizations. So Jane, what are your thoughts around how companies should form these strategies around recognizing and supporting people who maybe exercise a different leadership style? Yeah, uh, I think it's very important, uh, as you say, uh, the idea of really thinking about their leadership differently, thinking about their leadership models differently is absolutely critical for any company doing business globally. Because um, when you think about it, when you kind of peek under the, the covers, to determine what are they doing as they operate on a global basis. Very few organizations are living out uh, operating globally, right? They may have offices internationally in, in maybe 15 locations and certainly doing a lot of business with those cultures and communities. Uh, but as far as how they're operating, it, it's, not always, uh, it's not always global. It's not always uh, coordinated in that way. Uh, so I think uh, when you think about the growth of Asia, right, as an economy, and I'm sure you know this better than I, um, when you think about, you know, between 2006 and 2015, um, Asia GDP grew at a pretty significant pace, you know, far outpacing um, uh, Europe and, and certainly U.S. as well. So when you have growth like 7, 8, 9% a year, uh, that's still a lot faster than 1, 2, 3%, right? And so I think with the shift in power, right, from the West to East, I think we need to really look at how do we take, take into consideration the cultural differences uh, in the communities that we're working with, not only as talent, but also as customers and people that we're working with as business partners. Mm. With Asia as the growth region, as you've rightly stated, there seems to be opportunity for local leaders in companies in Asia to emerge and take on regional and global positions. You go into this in your book, Flex. So talk us through how companies can recognize and embrace different styles of leadership. What advice can you give us? 
Oh, we have so many things we can we can change, right? <laughs> As we think about working uh, with Asia, working effectively with with Asians and local talent as well. Uh, I think the key skill that I see for leadership effectiveness when you're trying to lead globally is the the concept of flexing, mm. right? And the idea that um, uh, that it's very possible to flex and, and change. However, you have to be very intentional about it, right? So flex, uh, the way that we've defined it in, in, in the new playbook um, uh, that we wrote, uh, is the ability to switch between leadership and engagement styles, to engage more effectively with people who are culturally different from you. So the ability to switch between styles. So it doesn't mean that you permanently have to change, right? But it's the idea that you can, you can use different approaches and styles to work more effectively with people who are culturally different. And, um, and so with anything that requires change or intentionally doing something differently, it requires uh, an intentionality uh, and it requires uh, conscious effort that people need to make. And it's not something that, that we were always born with either, so we need to work on that. Um, uh, so uh, I have been working with organizations and managers to really help them understand what this concept of flexing looks like and how as a leader it's so important to do so um, and, and really helping managers to do that. So as an example, um, I was working with uh, uh, an organization where there was a huge um, a person with a huge responsibility for global supply chain. Uh, he happened to be of Australian descent and working globally. So he had people who reported to him in the Asia Pacific region, Europe, um, and around the world. Really, he had a global role. Uh, so when he first got into this role and uh, had all of these different direct reports from different countries, he he just didn't know that he um, how he should relate to them differently, right? So of course, as most leaders do, especially leaders who've been effective to a certain point, they start to do the management practices that they're used to doing. And so he used to uh, do a lot of phone calls, conference calls, um, and, and count on those types of uh, email communications as sort of the, the major means of, of connecting and building rapport with his direct reports. And he started to realize that some of his offices in Asia were not really giving him the most information or it was really uh, hard to understand what was happening uh, on the ground. And so he started to, um, and he was starting to lose people as well. Uh, I think there was some attrition uh, that was starting to happen. And so he started to actually visit these offices more frequently and starting to get to know the leaders in these regions on a personal level uh, to build the rapport. And, and I'm sure you know, uh, in many of the Asian countries, the relationship is so critical and mm -hmm. the importance of building that relationship on a personal level is really going to be helpful to your work relationship so that the tasks can go faster later, right? So that you have a build of trust that, that you have built over time. And so he didn't understand that that was critical, right, to building that trust with his employees. And so once he started to do that, he realized, even though he didn't think it was efficient at first, right, because he was all about efficiency, he started to realize as he implemented that in his leadership style, in his meetings, in his status reports, that, um, uh, that later on the relationships got stronger and they were more likely to call him and to uh, ask him questions and to engage with him in this more intimate way. So I wanted to share that with you as one example of someone who did flex, who realized his old approach didn't work, and he had to do something differently and found that it was, uh, it was for his success, right? And, uh, and that built a lot of loyalty in the teams that he managed later on. Mm, really interesting. So it sounds like 
reflex is something that you have to work at. It doesn't really come naturally to many people. So say a leader wants to flex. What key piece of advice would you give that person? Oh, I love that question. Um, so you asked about what's a key piece of advice. You know, I would say uh, it's not easy to flex. And uh, it has to be something that you consider a critical part of your success. Uh, and requires us to kind of continue. And so I think flexing requires kind of a change mindset and thinking about doing something differently as, as not a bad thing, but as something that's more additive. And so it's the idea that it's kind of the both and mindset versus either or, right? So, uh, you know, let's say when you're working with uh, U.S. Americans and you're having conference calls with them, you're dealing with a different mindset over there, right, and a different way of doing things and communicating. And when you're doing something locally in Asia, uh, perhaps with China or Korea or Japan or one of the other offices, they also have a different mindset, right? So it's, it's understanding uh, how you need to shift your thinking and then your behaviors and your style so that you can be effective, um, so that you can have uh, more efficient work or better output of um, results at the end. So I think it's that, it's that persistence and uh, almost willingness to also laugh a little bit too and not take yourself too seriously because it's hard, right? And, um, and shifting gears is not easy. And so I, I really do feel for local leaders in Asia because the, you have to, on one hand, be effective locally, right? You have to know the local culture, you have to sell to customers that are there, but you also sometimes need to engage with uh, the headquarters or uh, the functional areas outside of your country. So I think that that dual role or uh, threefold role in some ways is, is, a, is a leadership challenge and something that we need to recognize. Absolutely. Jane, do you have a challenge for leaders operating in Asia to be successful in developing their local teams? I do. Um, I think it's really important for organizations to identify the culture dynamics that might be getting in the way of their teams, uh, and particularly their local teams from being effective. And then once you identify that, we, you need to address that and hold people accountable to it. Um, uh, and, and keep pressing on, right? Focusing on your inclusion efforts and how it relates to talent development. And, and don't lose sight of the fact that these types of things and initiatives take champions to continue the effort and to take it seriously. You know, if we treat it as kind of a one-time thing or something we, we try, but then we lose our focus on it, it's not, it's not going to have that progress. So um, if, if there is someone who holds that accountable and then there's champions supporting it, uh, it can see a lot of progress. Well, this has been great, Jane. Now, as we near the end of our time with you, you're based in the U.S., but I know that you're going to be in the region. In fact, you'll be running a workshop for us in May in Hong Kong. Tell us a bit more about that, and do you have any other plans while you're out here? What's the best way for people to see you in action and meet you while you're here? Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming out there again. Um, uh, so I will be back, I believe it's the second or third week of May, um, for some clients um, and speaking at some other places. Um, but I'm looking forward to spending some time with your organization and some of your members. Um, I'm going to be talking about Flex and, uh, and talking about perhaps some strategies for developing Flex in your leadership and perhaps some, some ways of thinking about that and, and some practical tips for doing it. So I hope that some of you might be there. And I certainly look forward to, uh, to seeing everyone from uh, community business again as well. Thank you, Jane. And thank you all for listening in on this Diane Leadership Podcast with Jane Heung. This has been Tina Arcelia. 
be sure to catch the next podcast where I catch up with Shuba Chako of Solidarity Foundation to hear about the great work they've been doing for sexual minorities in India.